Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of cultural appropriation and um, exactly. Orientalism is still quite... Like, I did a schools day a few weeks ago, and um, I always used to use in my classes, like, Aladdin, the original Disney animated version, as yeah. a good example of Orientalism, because the original song, when it opens, it says, I come from a land, from a faraway place, where the caravan camels roam, where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. And they changed it because there was such an uproar. Wow. But then I was thinking about a lot of, about the new adaptations of Aladdin, like in the West End and in the new film with Will Smith. And no one has stopped to think about the politics with having an African-American as the genie, right? An enslaved subject who answers to his right master. And in the stage show and in, in the film, it's an African-American. And that sense of perspective is always missing. But wow. um, and even on the stage show, they ran out of names. They had, like so they gave Aladdin some sidekicks. So they gave him like Ahmed, Ibrahim, and Babkak. Babkak. What the fuck is Babkak? Like <laughs> exactly. it's not a name. Like there's no other names in Arabic that you could have used. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so yeah. Welcome to Scholars in Spotlight. And uh, today, uh, this this version of the uh, podcast is a bit, bit, bit different because we have Charlotte here, Charlotte Sorbe. She's a research and enterprise officer, and her degree is also in history. So she's very much interested, and she's here to help me talk to Michael. So we are talking to Michael today, Michael Talbot. Michael Talbot is a senior lecturer in uh, University of Greenwich. Um, one of his, of course, uh, most important subject which we'll talk is Ottoman Empire history. He has worked in many different areas, and I hope we'll touch upon that. But, uh, Michael, first I would like to really thank you, and I really appreciate you being here. No, thank you for having me, and thank you for organizing this podcast series. It's a really great thing. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. So, um, history, just as a, as a concept, I've listened to so many historians defining it in a very... Um, different different ways but my version of history what I really like is that it is uh, multifaceted mm. so there is the, it, it actually it, it tells us about life from many different from many different areas I mean please uh, if you would like to give your definition and mm. then we'll... well my favorite definition of of what is history is from a, a medieval um, Islamic scholar called Ibn Khaldun. And he's kind of, um, he's a really celebrated figure in, in the Middle East and North Africa. You can find him on Tunisian banknotes and things like that. Um, and he says that history is a philosophy that deals with the entirety of human existence. And I think that is pretty much um, as broad a definition of history as you're going to get. And then of course, because it's a philosophy, um, that gives it a different level of it's not just talking about facts and dates and kings and queens and all that sort of thing. It's how do we understand that human existence? And that leads into another, perhaps, aspect of that definition, which is um, Karl Marx, who very famously said that up until now, um, philosophers have only interpreted history or philosophy. The point, however, is to change it. Hmm. 
And so also one of the roles of the historian is not just to understand the past, but to make that relevant to our society and to show not only that the world has been different, but could be different. Yeah. So implications of uh, history, of course, goes in many different directions. So that is why, although your definition is grandeur, and I would definitely, <laughs> I mean, it is, and but I would 100% feel, intuitively feel that it is true in mm. that sense. And I can see why the job of historian is now more important than ever, because all the cultures and all the uh, global village is now coming much closer. Yeah. So to understand and really shed light in that way. Absolutely. And one of the things that for me is important as a historian of the non-Western European world is that we should think about history from other perspectives, that history does not start in London or in Paris or even in Washington, um, that there are other parts of this planet that have very different understandings of history, um, whose chronologies... Um, are quite different to the way that we organise history in the West, um, who interpret shared historical events in quite different ways. So, um, yeah, this idea that... But also this idea that society is, for the first time, becoming part of a global society, yeah, that makes sense if you're looking from a Western European perspective, but the norm in the Asian world and in the African world was interconnectedness, hmm. even before European empires came and disrupted that. True. Um, well... So I guess from my perspective, I would I would ask how you came to take the Ottomans on as your mm. topic of interest. Through a very circuitous path, like many historians, I suspect. Um, I was first of all, well, I guess I was interested in the Middle East because it was a really important part of what was going on in my formative years, if you like. So in my teenage years, um, we have the Intifada in Palestine, so that's the rising of the Palestinian people against the Israeli occupation. Mm. We have 9-11, the Afghanistan, and then, of course, the Iraq wars, which the Iraq war in particular was a seminal moment, I think, for many people of my generation politically as well. Um, and that sort of got me interested in the region, partly because lots of people were just talking nonsense about it. Right. Like There were lots of people giving their opinions and not knowing anything about yeah. the background. So originally, actually, I was um, more interested in more modern history. So Israel okay. and Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I'd also spent um, in between school and university um, some time traveling in Turkey just because I just was quite interested. Um, and I fell in love with the Ottomans there, like the architecture, um, the rich and varied culture. But also the idea that fascinated me was that modern Turks can't read their own history. So Ottoman Turkish was written in a, a form of the Arabic alphabet. Right. It uses vocabulary from Turkish, Arabic and Persian. And when Turkey became a nation state, its founder, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, reformed the language to such an extent that now modern Turks can't read their own history. And I thought, right. what a fascinating idea. Yeah. Wow. So why why did they, I mean, is there a reason behind reforming it or it was mm. just, oh, okay, yeah, please. Um, in part, I mean, there were some logical reasons. The Arabic alphabet isn't necessarily suited to Turkish. I mean, Turkish is all about the vowels. Yeah. Arabic is all about the consonants. Mm -hmm. So it's it's it doesn't quite work. But also, it's a really important thing. Um, on the one hand, the new language represents the purity of the nation. So the, the language is cleansed of foreign influences, foreign words, foreign alphabets, even though they're using the Latin script, which, of course, is not natively Turkish, but we won't go there. Um, so that you cleanse the language, but then 
the language then also becomes a vehicle for modernity. It becomes simplified, and the purity of the language is related to the um, the idea that the peasants speak the truest form of the language. So the new official language becomes the peasant's language. But also, there's this important political motive too that if you can control what people can and cannot read by literally changing the language, then you can set the narrative. You can decide what was good and bad in the past, what bits of the past people remember or not. So now in Turkey, people are starting to learn the old language so that they can, as the phrase goes, read the tomb of my grandfather. Right? Mm. It's, uh, yeah, so there's these different aspects to it. So it was really effective, devastatingly effective, in fact. Yeah. So I, I don't know a lot about this era. Uh, the I'm not so well, if I, when I did history, it was a lot of, sort of early modern stuff, and not so much the more modern early modern English stuff. Yeah, European, mm. but the um, and I was talking to you about this the other day, and how there is um, a focus on the sort of English, particularly mm. British, uh, European uh, empires when you're studying history, and mm. then obviously they focus on those dominions and colonies, and you don't really touch upon mm. uh, the Ottomans, the Middle East that much, maybe a little bit with. You know things like the Levant Company mm-hmm. um, or um, World War One, when you've got the essential end or the decline of the Ottoman Empire, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of the only things we really touched upon. So it's interesting from my perspective to um, to see someone like yourself coming from, you know, sort of coming you know, from a completely different mm. um, empire, researching it, you know, researching a different sort of empire. But also, I'm assuming that there's um, uh, like I would say, a, a situation where you probably had um, what was it the like an exceptionalism in the past. I'm assuming there was like a, a you know you would see these empires as exceptional, and I don't mm. know if there's like a phase now where they're looking at them as more similar as you know with yeah. with hindsight. So there there is a big move to compare mm. empires. Um, there's usually a distinction drawn between the kind of the the landmass based Asian empires and the maritime colonial ones. Um, there's also a danger at the moment in terms of empire studies about this discussion over whether empire was good or bad, which is a really silly way of thinking about things. Yeah. Um, so different is probably the better way. And it leads down to the question of what is an empire? So we tend to think about um, the British empire or the French empire going out and establishing colonies with mm-hmm. settlers um, usually for the purposes of gaining a resource of one kind or another to send back to the motherland the metropole um, now the ottoman empire along with other asian empires the, the, the ming and the Qing in china and um, the mughals in north india the safavids and qajars in iran um, have a slightly different attitude towards what an empire means it's still exploitative so you still have a, a center yeah. that exploits the provinces mm-hmm. um but they're very much more often about partnership so the, there's a definite hierarchy that there are certain kinds of people who are important and more important than your imperial subjects yeah. but those imperial subjects have a, a stake have an investment somehow in that empire whereas i think in the european empires it's much more exclusionary um, which often, of course leads into categories such as, as race, for example. Um, not that the Ottomans and others didn't have attitudes towards different kinds of people of different colour or ethnicity, but um, it was certainly less of a, a scientific mm-hmm. racism, if you like. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult to categorise yeah. um, empires. Um, also because, and, this, and you mentioned the word decline, 
Yeah, and I, is, I thought you might you could see me pick twitching. up on that. Yeah, yeah. because it's obviously uh, you know that British perspective where That's you right. get it's like the Roman Empire as well. You get the words decline and fall. That's right. When you're looking at the end of sort of these empires. So we tend to so historians and other people tend to do what we we say anthropomorphize mm. states. Right, we turn them into human beings where they have a birth. And then they're toddlers and then an adolescence, a strong, virile manhood, and then they decline into <laughs> yeah. old age and die. Now, if the Ottoman Empire was a person like that, based on the classical narrative of, de of decline, um, it would have gone straight into its 20s um, and then hung around in its 30s for a bit before zooming down into its 70s for about 50 years. Right. So it's, it's a weird way to think about states. And we always have to ask the question, decline for whom? Um, decline of what decline when and why so yeah we tend to avoid the d word in yeah. an ottoman study because like, yeah because it's not something i've come across really myself yeah. i was wondering it was something i was interested in because you do get that a lot when you discuss things like the roman empire absolutely and the romans are kind of a good comparator in some respects to the ottomans yeah um, similar geographic region mm -hmm. that they control um, and one sort of morphed into the other in kind many respects, of, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the titles the Ottoman sultans use is the Kaisari Rum, the Caesar of Rome, because they're the inheritors of the Byzantine Empire, which was itself the Eastern Roman Empire. So, yeah, there's a strong Mediterranean imperial vibe going on. And the other reason, I guess, that, that the British Empire distorts our, pers our perspective on things is actually when you think about it, the British Empire is really short in terms of its duration. Yeah. So there's, there's colonies going back into the 16th century, but in terms of the golden age of empire that everyone glorifies today, that's really only from the 1870s maybe um, until the 1930s. What's exceptional about the British Empire, I expect, is the, is the sheer barbarity and brutality of what it's, and how much it messes up so much of the world in a relatively short period mm. of time, including parts of the Middle East that they take over yeah. from the Ottomans. So, um, the the aspect of um, English Empire. I mean, the the distinction you made is big. Is there a link that the empires are actually forming from the history, and then slowly uh, there's a chain of how they are getting more brutal or mm. shorter, or this is just something which I think the the shortness and the brutality um, is also a function of capitalism. That you you can't think about the British Empire or indeed the French and to some extent the Dutch empires too without thinking about the rise of capitalism as the dominant world model of not just economics, but the political economy too. So capitalism sets different goals for states um, and it makes the pursuit of an endless wealth the primary goal, um, whereas other forms of empire who exist in pre-capitalist or proto-capitalist markets are less driven let's say they're more driven by stability and the establishment of a universal order um so we should see really the european empires in the later 19th century as disruptive in the same way that capitalism has been disruptive of so many aspects of global society and i'm assuming and correct me if i'm wrong would technology then mm -hmm. play a huge part in that as well that Absolutely. you mentioned because of, I mean you know the Europeans obviously that technolog technological technological advantage was mm -hmm. um, was exceptional I'm assuming I mean it was I mean but only it only becomes exceptional because they undo the technological advances of other parts other, of the world yeah. so when they come into North India mm -hmm. India is industrializing in many respects that in in places like um, Gujarat for example the industries 
there are competing actively with the British markets. Yeah. So Northwest, Northwestern Europe is not exceptional in the fact that it has new kinds of modes of production. It is exceptional in the fact that it effectively de-industrializes other parts of the world. So you think of the sophisticated, advanced societies in West Africa, in South Asia, in Southeast Asia that the Europeans encounter and how quickly and how devastatingly they, they undo centuries um, of progress um, through brutal um, rule. Now, the Ottomans, as I say, have a slightly different attitude towards that. But then in the 19th century, they want to compete and be amongst the big boys. So towards the end of the empire, they do adopt, to some extent, these sorts of um, imperatives. And that's why we see towards the end of the empire um, increased incidents of um, centre-periphery divides, violence by the centre against minority subjects in particular. Not that there hadn't been this beforehand, yeah. but it accelerates and it's all part of this same sort of function. I mean, it's interesting what you said. I mean, you might not agree to it, and I don't know how, to, to what extent this actually does make sense, but in linguists and a lot of neuroscientists, there is a statement where they say that language actually defines your reality mm. and how you speak somehow those experiences are imprinted in your mind and that is how you see the world because through your perceptive lenses is what you know being mm -hmm. fed to you it's funny enough what you're talking about all the empires that how they actually change the language mm. and try to the, one of the biggest thing that they do is that they change the lens through which you are looking or mm. or make it a little bit muddy. Mm -hmm. So either even if it is collaboration, it's like, oh no, we are good for you. Actually, we are doing it for you. Oh yeah, we are getting enough power, but right. no, no, no. It's actually, you know. Absolutely. And this is part, of course, I mean, the the Western European spin, this is, is what becomes known as the civilizing mission. So that you go to backward parts of the world, backward, of course, in inverted commas, and you bring them progress and civilization when they had plenty of that um, already. And yeah, it does the, the, the terms that we use. So even the terms of how do we describe colonial and imperial subjects? Um, they are definitely subjects. Um, they would be called at the time the natives. Mm -hmm. There are nastier words, of course, to speak about them, but each of these things puts them on a different level. So even in the Ottoman case, um, the, the, the term that's most commonly used for the sultan subjects is Ra'aya, which is like the flock, the sultan's flock. So, you know, he's the shepherd, he's the shepherd. They look he looks after them. And the Ottomans don't call themselves an empire. They call themselves the sublime state, mm. the well-protected domains. They're, they're, they have a different attitude, at least linguistically, towards these things. Whereas, of course, we live in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, right? So the way the things that you call yourselves give a bit of a statement as to your world outlook, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, growing up in Pakistan mm. um, and studying a lot about it, I mean, I think still the effects of the empires are, uh, I would say, critical. Absolutely. Um, although what you said about um, what your self-worth and how even over there, I think most of the people would agree that mm. A lot of my friends, even from my generation, which are which is now, what's it, second, third generation, mm. second generation, something like that, mm. after the World War Two, they still um, have those remnants of 
subjectiveness right. towards the empire and to to call themselves subject still it it somehow mm-hmm. manifests unconsciously and i don't know if this term even means anything but some sort of a reverse racialism where you mm-hmm. do associate for no reason just hierarchy mm-hmm. to someone else it's like those relationship with the masters and teachers mm-hmm. in traditional era where and that's that's actually kind of a relationship still with the absolutely and you can see a language again you can see that so the fact that we're having this conversation in english and not in persian for for instance the fact that you know when i was when i used to work in paris you would have people who were from morocco or tunisia who of course speak fluent arabic but refuse to speak it they will only speak in french because that's a sign of their sophistication their class their education so yeah the the remnants of of empire are are absolutely everywhere um and part of that as well i suspect why it's so raw is because um the uk still hasn't even begun to come to terms to what it's done to the west rest of the world and as i i think i've, I've said to charlotte before how can we begin to think about india when we haven't even begun to think about ireland how can we expect british school kids even those who have south asian heritage um to think about what empire really meant when they're not learning about things like the irish famine or the highland clearances that, that if we're capable of doing that to to use a sort of our own people if you like mm-hmm. imagine how the then the brutality of which we treat people who we think of as racially inferior of course the irish were seen as racially inferior too but um even more so um in south asia so yeah these these things are so important and it but it belies an attitude of empire that persists with us today and of course that we're seeing resurging in in our political system too not that it ever really went went away when I mean, why why if if that even makes sense ottoman empire is is there a story behind it does make it? sense yeah. it does make sense i mean when they they do call themselves that to some extent in in french they would call themselves the empire ottoman but um it's called an empire because that's how europeans categorize the world and that's how they they there's categories of state that emerge in the um 17th and 18th century that you have kingdoms and empires and republics and they had to fit the ottomans into there somehow we gave a little bit of um that's finished and the ottomans have to fit into there somewhere um so i've lost my train of thought there was a bit of um yeah yeah static and static yeah that's okay um So yeah the, so yeah so that they're called an empire because it fits into the european categories but they tend not to think of themselves as as an empire the there are religious aspects to it so the ottoman sultan from the 16th century is also the sunni caliph so he has a religious role within islam so one of his titles is like zillahi so he's the shadow of god on earth um he's also the world holder he's the sultan of rome he's the master of the two lands of the two seas like these are big universalist claims mm-hmm. in a way that the europeans later will try and um uh, appropriate to some extent but it's a very different idea that a universal order can be built around justice rather than force and the, the some to some extent other empires the mughals have a similar um principle for example that um foreign rulers should come and seek refuge at our, with our justice because we are the most upright and moral state and that will then allow them to be successful and the other thing as well is that they value um all of these states value commerce the peaceful um conduct of trade 
um, between friendly nations for the enrichment of the world. And then, of course, the Europeans come in and with their idea of mercantilism that says that the whole world is like a pie and there's only a, so much of a slice that anyone can get. So we've all to go, go grab the biggest slice. A very different way of thinking about the world. But that is, um, as far as I'm aware, what your research is focused on quite a lot, isn't mm. it? The diplomatic and commercial kind of encounters. As yeah, such. yeah, that's right. So, I mean, um, my, my first book, and many of my articles have focused on British... Um, Ottoman relations, um, 17th and 18th centuries, um, thinking about how the Brits start off as the very much the junior partner who have to come to Istanbul and um, show that they're worthy of the rights to trade with the very rich trade of the Mediterranean. I mean, let's not forget, I mean, from an Asian perspective, England is a barbarous, backward, resource-poor island that no one, they know it's somewhere off France, they don't really care where. Um, it's got some sheep and it's got some mines. That's about it. And we don't need sheep. We've got sheep of our own and it's fine. Um, and then, But then I also look at how that changes. How is it that at the beginning of the 18th or the end of the 17th century, the Brits are this junior partner. By the beginning of the 19th century, they are sending gunboats to try and bombard Istanbul. So it's also a story about how does the world shift from this multi-polar, um, if you like, um, world system to one where the Europe, Western Europe becomes the main axis of things. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is actually a very interesting point because I've talked to a lot of Europeans here who I'm very close to now because I'm living here for the last six, seven years. Mm. If I mention sometimes about 13th century, which is the golden era of uh, Islamic states um, or, or, or Ottoman a Empire, it's hard to convey the message. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't know why is it. Is it because of the? It's just because most of us live in our tribe. Yeah, if I think you call it's part it of tribe. that. It is yeah. part of that. But it's also like the 16th century is a good example when it comes to England. So you think of the 16th century. You think of Henry VIII, Elizabeth the Armada, Shakespeare, it's a golden age for English culture, right? And that's the top line that's talked to everyone that's as well, the top of course. Line yeah. That's to everyone, exactly. But actually, what are they doing? Like when the when the when British merchants go to even provincial Ottoman cities like Algiers, where there's like running water and sanitation and mm. hospitals and proto welfare systems like then you realize that England isn't this you know in the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century again although it's not all sunshine and rainbows mm -hmm. I must add <laughs> um, you know we have um, soup kitchens that are established by the state by notables to look after poor people in England vagrancy is a crime punishable by death so again it's a different way of thinking of the world and London the Shakespeare's London is a tiny provincial city by Ottoman standards. Istanbul is the biggest city on the planet at that point with all of the wealth and sophistication that comes with. And yeah, to tell that to an English person in particular who's been brought up to think that that was our golden age, that was when we started off on our God-given right to rule the world, then that's kind of a hard thing to hear. And I think that's what also shifts concepts of morality. Mm. I mean, how... Because... It's, it's one of the hardest discussion I've ever had with mm. most of the people is that some sort of moral acts which we really consider moral might mm. not be considered moral in next 200 years. Absolutely. And you can just see it by the... But you can just compare it, how it changed in the last five to 600 years. Oh, very much so. And of course, mor morality is often linked up with the idea of the law and the idea that 
whatever is a law is necessarily moral. And many people believe that now. And then when you point out to them, well, slavery was legal and therefore also to some extent moral. Um, de the death penalty, right? Things like that. Um, I'd, I'd, I'm still not a fan of being of thinking about things in moral terms. Um, so even something, so let's take the example of the soup kitchens that the Ottomans set up in the 16th century, right? That seems like a really nice moral thing to do to look after the poor. Well, many of our accounts say that actually it was as much like a free restaurant for the rich people as it was for the poor people. And right. the, the rich people would go there and get the first and the best mm -hmm. food and the poor people would get the scraps. Yeah. So it seems moral and it's more moral in some respects. At than, face value at least. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and also because... Morality is, is based in, in a particular culture, isn't it? And different cultures have different ideas and different sources of morality. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a tricky question. Yeah. But it's also not always the most useful way to think about things, I think. Yeah. Perfect. So, um, would you like to... Uh, there's a story uh, which links somehow this perspective and some sort mm. of an juxtaposition of how when the English or Europeans used to come to Ottoman, what kind of an extended uh, rituals they had to go through mm -hmm. to somehow pass through or get intimidated, but also, you know, get accepted. And then there's a story where an Ottoman uh, trader goes mm. to Europe. If you would touch on both yeah, okay. a little bit. So, so the first one is in part goes back to this idea of what, an empire is and and what image the state wants to convey so the whole idea behind ottoman relations with foreign powers is about trade and the treaties that they give and they're not negotiated they're given to foreign powers is basically a long commercial treaty but in order for that treaty to be valid there are certain as you say um ceremonies that have to be gone through and this is a performance of the ottoman um world view so um the ambassador, but let's just take my example, the British ambassador um, has to give, first of all, um, gifts. And um, obviously the Brits hate that because it shows them to be needing of giving gifts. And the Ottomans have a very specific, like John Lewis style gift request list, right? There are other supermarkets <laughs> and shops available um, um, that they consider acceptable. So it's usually textiles, um, watches, um, and things like that. So once those gifts are accepted, then the ambassador um, has to go and present his credentials and his master's or mistress's letter um, to the Ottoman authorities. And there are two major ceremonies that have broadly the same purpose, which is to show off the might and generosity of the Ottoman state. So the ambassador has his audience with the Sultan on a day that the Janissaries, who's the Ottoman professional army, are being paid so he gets to see the coins being weighed out the soldiers on parade and so therefore you have strength and wealth together he then also sees the janissaries being fed which is a there's some really fantastic manuscript paintings of this so they would the ottoman palace officials would lay out massive bowls of rice in the courtyard and then the janissaries would just peg it across the courtyard to stuff their faces with the rice and that shows that they're continually accepting the, the sultan's authority so the ambassador sees all this um, and then he moves into ever more private spaces of the palace, um, finally arriving at the audience chamber where the sultan is sitting. But um, until the early 19th century, 
the Sultan never looks at or speaks to the ambassador because he is just some random provincial official as far as he's concerned. And you can imagine what the English ambassador felt about <laughs> that, right? So they, they're taken into this audience hall. Um, the ambassador and his retinue are physically grabbed by the arms, held underneath the arms and forced forward to bow before the Sultan, right? So you imagine what, uh, you know, if you think our sense of national pride the ambassador of the king or queen is being physically forced to bow before a sultan who's not even looking at him. This is the performance of a monarch who knows that he is the lord of the universe, right? He is the representative of God on earth. So, but once that's done, everything's great. That shows that you've performed your friendship and your merchants can trade freely. And British and French and Dutch merchants have, have exceedingly high levels of protection um, under law um, within the Ottoman Empire. Now that changes in part as the story progresses. So, as I mentioned before, as the European, Western European model um, of trade and capitalism becomes, starts to become the dominant one, backed up by force, um, then things start to change. And one of the case studies that I looked at a few years ago was what happened to Ottoman merchants when they find themselves in Western European countries seeking justice. Um, and I've never yet found an example where they have found um, justice and so one of the cases that I looked at was this really um, unfortunate guy called Yanni Xeno um, or um, Zeno his name is he's an Ottoman Greek and he's a merchant and all he does is he wants to help people trade stuff right so he helps to get grain from Morocco to Algiers he helps to get timber from the Adriatic to Tunis like he's part of this big network of trade Every single time he tries to go on a on a business mission, something bad happens. The ship sinks in a storm. The ship gets taken by pirates. The business partner runs off with the money. Like, the poor bloke just cannot get a break. And in one of the final examples, um, where his ship is seized um, in, the, in a war between the British and the French, uh, he goes to Gibraltar, to the English Admiralty Court there, to claim back his goods that he thinks have been unfairly taken. And he goes there with a stack of paper in about four or five different languages. There's Spanish, Italian, French, English, and Arabic documents. Because he thinks in an Ottoman law court, this is evidence. This is proof that he's done all that's right and proper. And the English judge says quite specifically in his judgment, if we give a ruling in favor of a Moor, so like a Muslim, then we will set a precedent that this is a bad thing. Of course, this guy isn't a Muslim. He's a Christian Greek. He just happens to be an Ottoman subject. So these attitudes towards each other's trading subjects reveals a lot. The Ottomans try to protect and encourage trade. The Brits and the French try to encourage and protect their own and not others' trade. Yeah. That That is a very um, prevalent characteristic, unfortunately, of certain economic system absolutely america first right <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the same principle but it, it's it's again it's like it's this idea that there is a set amount of wealth in the world and it's up to you to seize as much of it as you can and it's also a sign that the nation state has more um to offer than the multi-ethnic multi-racial multi-linguistic empire that if you look after your own 
and strengthen your own nation, then they can do anything. But if you have to pander all the time to lots of different groups and try and make everyone happy, then you're going to be stuck in the past. And that's, you know, again, with, with the new systems that arise in the 19th century, it's not a coincidence that we see the rise of the nation state and the demise of the multi-ethnic, um, multi-linguistic, multi-religious empire. Um, so if just one of the last things mm -hmm. about um, well, empires we can clearly see is really messy and uh, yeah yeah I mean overall it, it has a lot of nuances mm. and I, I mean messy not just I mean they are really they are great actually that's where I'm coming to at some point at some perspective through some lens but we talked I think a lot about um why certain aspects of empires were um, degrading mm. or let's say not degrading or they were just you know um, there there were there was always an agenda is there a is there a, a thing which you find out that empires actually without this perspective and cultural scenarios inherently has some property which is um, evolutionarily or in some manner makes uh gives some sort of advantage to humans and that is why they may be reoccurring or you think it's just the property of being human species we mm. want to come together collaborate and that somehow result in empires i mean part of this also is down to the is the problematic issue of how do we define an empire yeah um does it offer things to humankind i, su I suppose um it does offer benefits to a group within a wider society that gives them privileges over others hmm. and control over others with the illusion sometimes of a partnership. So, I mean, even thinking into, into ancient history, um, empires are a thing. I mean, we think about the Babylonians, the Assyrians, later the Greeks, and of course the Romans, the Egyptians. An empire essentially means from those times and indeed onwards, one group of people exerting control over another group of people who don't necessarily want to have that control exerted over them. And it's about structures of power. The collaborations that empires can provide tend to exist anyway. People tend to trade. Um, the state in the pre-modern world tends to be less hands-on and so you don't really see the, the physical aspects or the material aspects of empire or the state in the way that we do in our daily lives. So I think what an empire is, it's the, it's the imposition of a structure of power over conditions that probably exist already um, but which now enable the people exerting that power to derive ultimate benefit from them, okay. if that makes sense. It does, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do understand that point. And then the question of benefit, again, is like the question of morality. Yeah. Um, sure, some people will benefit. Um, some people will benefit through wealth. Some people will benefit. They might meet someone they might never have met before and fall in love and have a family that would, have, would not have been possible without this imperial system. I don't know, that's just a random example. Benefit really is a problematic term because do people gain benefit from being oppressed, from having their, being told that their language is not as important as another language, being, being told that their heritage and their civilization, their customs are just part of a patchwork of 
equally unimportant um, customs and religions or whatever um, under this imperial um, hegemony. Um, yeah, it's problematic. Some token benefits, but overall individual agency suffers. It can do, but again, it's it's such a huge thing to generalize yeah, about. True. And the question of individual agency is also important when we think about a pre-modern world where community was much more important in some respects. I mean, capitalism, one of its effects is that it atomizes people, right? That it creates individuals working out for the individual and the nuclear family um, over the extended family or the community. So again, it's difficult to think about things in those terms, I think, for the pre-modern world. Um, not that people weren't selfish or have their own interests, um, but there's just different kinds of ways of visualizing and experiencing society that's much less individualistic than we are used to today. So some of our, um, I would say, negative properties as a whole, which is represented in a group somehow got on steroids mm. through some weird systems which actually influence those areas and that's that's what I'm I could I could see what, what yeah. where it could be going with yeah. but also yeah. I guess in some respects the one thing that being more being more individual individualistic gives you I suppose is that a degree more freedom to be a bit different and yeah. historically societies including our own to many respects doesn't always appreciate difference and people who go away from the the pack and so forth um so i think that there is you know i i enjoy the fact that i within reason i can pretty much wear what i want um i can sleep with who i want to sleep with um within the law i can um speak whatever language I want to speak. I can worship whatever God or not I want to worship. Um, that's a kind of freedom that modern society affords that most historical people couldn't even have imagined. And so, yeah, again, benefits. But then I, I then I lose out from living in an, in an awful system that wears us down and degrades us every day. <laughs> Makes you do podcasts. <laughs> Makes you do podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Charlotte? Thank you so much. Thank for you for having here. me. Yeah, yeah. And Michael, I My mean, pleasure. thanks a lot. Thanks for doing it. I can see you definitely have a duty to do and you are doing it. Thank and you. thanks for illuminating. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Anytime. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.